it's it's Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that have returned honor to to journalism. Julian is a truth teller, and that's what has upset the those who continue what Goebbels called the big lie. Theme music from The Third Man and uh, the great John Pilger, uh, the world's uh, finest journalist, who, guess what, we have on today. John Pilger, in a class by himself. Um, no one like him. I'm Randy Credico, by the way, and uh, this is uh, Randy Credico, uh, live on the fly, Assange's Countdown to Freedom, episode 16. I can't believe it. In lockdown, by the way, I'm in lockdown. I am not in a studio. I haven't been in four weeks. I've been ensconced inside a very cramped place here. Uh, so uh, you just have to bear with me. Um, and uh, we do have John Pilger on, so you, you will bear with me. Um, Pilger is, like I said, uh, in a league of his own. Uh, I was looking at his uh, credits today. Um, you know, Journalist of the Year, 1967. And then again, Journalist of the Year, uh, 1979. That's the British Journalist of the Year Award. Uh, he has been the recipient of the uh, Sydney uh, Peace Prize. He's won a Peabody Award. He's won Emmy Awards. Uh, I mean, if you take a look at the awards, it, it would take me uh, about a half an hour if I were to enumerate them. So, uh, Go to his website and see for yourself, uh, johnpilzer.com. And while you are there, what you should do, and this is what I've been doing since I've been uh, in this lockdown situation. I watch Gunsmoke occasionally, but I've been watching John's films. And uh, you know, I've seen about 15, 20 of them, but now I've almost watched them all because I've been here for like 30 days. And... Uh, his films, almost all of them, are available at his website. And uh, like I said, johnpilger.com. Hey, if you are uh, in a lockdown situation and you've got kids homeschooling, may I recommend that you show them his films going all the way back. Go get a real education. Go all the way back, 1970. Vietnam, uh, The Quiet Mutiny, uh, 1974, uh, Palestine is still the issue, uh, 1980, The Mexicans, uh, 2007, The War on Democracy, 2013, Utopia. Uh, I mean, they're all there, almost all, all but the uh, NHS, the Dirty War on the NHS, which just came out, but you can stream it, and uh, he will uh, tell you how to do that. I think it's on the website, it shows you how you can stream the dirty war on the NHS. But like I said, show your kids these films. I'm serious. Forget about what they learn in the public schools, uh, what they learn in private schools. Uh, this is a real history lesson. 
And uh, every single one of them is a masterpiece. All right. So do that for the sake of your children. You should do that. And watch them yourself if you haven't seen them or if you've forgotten uh, American history, uh, our politics, uh, our foreign policy. Uh, It's all there. John Pilger, uh, over, I mean, like six decades uh, of films uh, there, and you can get them for nothing. JohnPilger.com. I'm actually going to play an excerpt uh, from his, this is the trailer. Uh, from his latest uh, uh, film just came out and it's really timely uh, with this, uh, you know, play going around and it's uh, called the uh, dirty war on the NHS. Uh, Listen to this. In 2019, more of the NHS was sold to private firms than ever before. I'm proud of what the National Health Service and there's nowhere in any nation in the world to compare Healthcare for all on the basis of need, not ability to pay. That's an enormous and important achievement. For many Britons, the war had been fought for a new Jerusalem of decent homes and jobs and healthy lives. This leaflet tells you what the new National Health Service is and how you can use what it offers. The NHS has been repurposed from a public service to something for profit extraction. Tens of billions are being siphoned off to run a market system. All the changes we have seen have just been about liberating up these potential assets for the corporate raiders to take them over. Globally, if you look at it, and the NHS stands out as a 120-odd billion pound opportunity. They decided that as lead nurses, we would go around all of the wards to see if we could actually get them out. In the United States, the cartel of health insurance companies decide who shall live or die. All you're getting is the management consultancy kind of approach. The beauty of the NHS came from its simplicity. There was no need for this army of intermediaries we now have. We will never abolish the NHS. The NHS simply becomes eventually a basic service. As I said, you can get The Dirty War. You can actually stream it if you go uh, to that website. It's available uh, through some streaming uh, process. Um, and uh, Now, here's another one that uh, I just saw for the very first time, and that is uh, Year Zero. It's the uh, silent death of Cambodia. Year Zero, the silent death of Cambodia. He actually did five different films Uh, on Cambodia, but this is the first one, and this is from 1979. Modern, bustling city, greater than Amsterdam or Brussels. For four years, it stood silent, abandoned, as if in the wake of a nuclear war that spared only the buildings. This is how I remember it. The capital of a land of plenty, of markets everywhere. A land that produced three annual harvests and a variety of fruit renowned in Asia. The Chinese, in search of a superlative, used to say, as rich as Cambodia. One man above all reflected this image, Noradam Sihanouk, self-styled god-king, jazz lover, movie maker, conspirator, demagogue. 
see in or preserve Cambodia's independence like an absurd juggler in a cockpit of war. In 1970, he was overthrown in the chaos that followed the American bombing. In the spring of 1969, American B-52s had begun the secret bombing of neutral Cambodia. These top-secret military cables, obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, were part of a cover-up that was the real beginning of Watergate. The pilots were sworn not to tell even their superiors, and their logs were falsified. The official aim of the bombing was to wipe out a Viet Cong base in Cambodia, a base that existed only in the imagination of American generals. President Nixon's aim was to show the Vietnamese communists just how tough he could be, a policy he once described as the madman theory of war. The Cambodians who died were called collateral damage, and their burning villages were called friendly fire. Okay, so, year zero, the silent... Uh Death of Cambodia, get that online, johnpilter.com. And then uh, this one, here's another trailer, and this is from 2010, and it includes an excellent uh, interview with Julian Assange, and it's called The uh, War You Don't See. Here's the trailer. What happened was a crime. It was a crime on a, on a very large scale. This film is about the war you don't see. The film will ask, what is the role of the media in rapacious wars like Iraq and Afghanistan? And how are the crimes of war reported and justified when there are crimes? Oh yeah, look at those dead bastards. Modern democracies don't leave marks. The British elites do not want the public to know what they're doing, so the public is a threat that needs to be countered. This kind of atrocity is not an aberration. This is not an everyday occurrence. If it was an everyday occurrence, we would certainly know about it. The lives of countless men, women and children depend on the truth. This film is about your right to know. Okay, so you can see the war you don't see the entire film uh, at johnpilger.com and uh, so uh, we're going to take a quick break and actually talk to the master the master journalist uh, John Pilger um, after this little piece of music that um, Julian Assange actually recommended that I play back when I interviewed him in uh, July of 2017 uh, it was his favorite version of um, the band played Waltzing Matilda, and this is by June Tabor. And we'll be right back with John Pilger. When I was a young man, I carried me pack And I lived a free life of the rover From the Murray's Green Bay Sun to the dusty outback I waltzed my Matilda all over then in 1915 the country said, son, it's time to stop rambling, there's work to be done. And they gave me a tin hat and they gave me a gun, and they sent me away to the war. And the band played waltzing Matilda. 
As our ship pulled away from the quay Amidst all the cheers The flag waving and tears We sailed off to Okay, that was uh, June Tabor the, and the band played Waltz in Matilda written by Eric Bogle uh, in 1971. Uh, this is a Randy Credico, Randy Credico live on the fly, and this is Assange Countdown to Freedom, episode 16. Can't believe it uh, this year. Um, as promised, uh, we are now being joined by the great John Pilger, the wonderful John Pilger, the renowned John Pilger. John, thank you for uh, joining us again. Thank you, thank you for having me, Randy. And I'm I'm honoured to be on your program, and also to uh, to be in the company of uh, that extraordinary Eric Bogle. Yes, uh, in Matilda, uh, I use that in several films. And apart from perhaps some of Buffy Saint Marie's work, I can't think of another ballad that really expresses the true anti-war message as that does so thank you yeah you know it really is special he, he's a, he's from scotland but he um when he was 25 he uh, immigrated to uh australia uh, yeah. so everyone's uh, a lot of australians tonight it's uh, julian assange you uh eric Bogle, uh, and uh, june Tabor. um it was actually julian who recommended that version by her. Do you know? Do you know uh, Eric Bogle, by the way? I don't know him. Uh, I've, corris I've corresponded with him when I put when I first put that that uh, uh, waltzing Matilda on the film, but I I haven't met him. Uh, I like the sound. He sounds a little like Joe Cocker at times, uh, and uh, uh, it's anyway. It's just a it's 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 a great it's a great version of of a of a of a, a ballad that's used here for usually the opposite reasons, very patriotic and all that. I see. I did not know that. Uh, I I will say that uh, you know um, in the uh, beginning of the um, of the film, uh, the war you don't see. Um, you know, you talk about uh, the First World War. Um, and uh, so this goes back to uh, Gallipoli. Uh, so tell us how that ties in that that world uh, that First World War, the meeting between the Prime Minister and uh, the head of the Guardian. Um, I wanted to hear more on that. What was what what became of that meeting between the Prime Minister and the uh, Scott? I guess his name is the editor of the Guardian. C.P. Scott. C.P. Scott was, uh, <clears throat> uh, I suppose one of the legendary editors. Uh, he was so legendary that he conspired with um, Lloyd George, who was then the British Prime Minister running <coughs> the Allied side of the First World War. And uh, um, it, it um, Scott's famous quotation is that uh, in conversation with Lloyd George, he said that, uh, well, you know, uh, the war could be over tomorrow, 
but of course it won't be uh, uh, because the people really don't know about it. I paraphrase it there. It's, it's very similar to that. And he was saying that as long as the Guardian newspaper and the rest of the media uh, censored the truth about the carnage of the First World War, uh, that it could go on and be misrepresented as some important patriotic adventure, which of course it wasn't. It was uh, an Edwardian bloodfest in which uh, Australians played a very big role. Australia had the second highest uh, proportion of population, second highest casualty rate in the First World War behind the French. Uh, they were used as fodder, particularly at an especially useless invasion in Gallipoli in the Dardanelles, which was dreamt up by Winston Churchill, who was then um, <clears throat> effectively Minister for War in, in London. And Australian and New Zealand troops, known as Anzacs, were then fighting under a British command. And they were thrown into uh, the beaches of the Dardanelles, which uh, uh, are very, uh, um, uh, are very forbidding, because there's there's not much of a beach. It's then a sheer cliff, and at the top of all these cliffs were Turkish emplacements. The Turkish army would just mowed them down. So it was very much like a version of the awful Battle of the Somme, but played out on the beaches of the Dardanelles, and especially at a, at a beach called Gallipoli, which the Anzacs uh, stormed. Now, I mean, we'd, we'd be able to consign the story of Gallipoli to, to yet another... Uh, um, <clears throat> tale of carnage uh, in wartime, except that Gallipoli was picked up by the then colonial um, uh, administration in this country, uh, where there was a great deal of support for the British during the First World War, though not enough support to see uh, conscription to see the draft. So all the Australian soldiers who died in the First World War were volunteers. Wow. Gallipoli, Gallipoli was made into, into a kind of, into a place where Australians were blooded in the great theatre of war. Uh, and Anzac Day, which falls coming up very shortly, in a couple of days' time, the 25th of April, because uh, it was the 25th of April 1915 that this carnage happened. On Anzac Day here, uh, it's like a national day. It's, uh, it's full of patriotic uh, um, um, parades and pretty much like the 4th of July, but with very, very military. Uh, 
Fortunately, thanks to our friend coronavirus, there will be no Anzac Day uh, with uh, people marching and waving flags through the streets. I'm going to talk about the coronavirus in a second, but but uh, did the Guardian and all the other newspapers sell this as as a good war and they hid the casualties? I'm sorry, I missed that, Randy. Say that again. Did the Guardian and other British uh, newspapers uh, sell this as a good war and uh, hid all of the casualties, basically? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And it was only, it's very interesting, it was only, um, it was one film, and I think I used extracts from this film, which was actually a propaganda film, British government propaganda film, The Battle of the Somme. Yes. Somme was this, just this killing field of, of people where generals threw men like, like rag dolls against, against uh, uh, German, uh, uh, superior German fire and, and tens of thousands were pe of people, I can't remember the exact figures, were killed in a single day and so on and so forth. Um, this, this film about the Battle of the Somme <clears throat> actually turned around. It was meant to, was meant to show the British public um, what their, their brave sons and brothers and, and husbands were doing in France uh, and in Belgium, but it, it actually gave them a sense of the absolute bloodfest of this war. So it worked on one level, yes, they could cheer on their boys, but on another level, it gave them a glimpse of the horror of the First World War. Uh, and that was the first time the media, if you could call that single film, the media, had given a sense of it. I mean, some of the so-called famous correspondents, uh, British correspondents of the First World War, all of whom were given knighthoods later on, uh, wrote, when they wrote their memoirs after the war, they all confessed. Uh, my job was to, uh, not to question this horror. Uh, my job was to write down what I was told. They spell it out. They're very interesting to read because these people were these people were putting the lie. So it's a, kind of, it's a version of CNN in the early part of the 20th century uh, describing the invasion of Iraq. Uh, so the Guardian, yes, the Guardian, I, to be fair to the Guardian, I don't know exactly how they reported it. Um, um, they probably, there was probably a lot of hand wringing. But that, that quote by C.P. Thompson, their editor, saying if only people knew the truth, then the war wouldn't last, was, was a clear indication that, that his newspaper and all the rest of the media in Britain were covering up this war. And it's, it's really extraordinary to cover up uh, such a, a huge event, such a, a bloodletting just across the channel 
from your own country. But they did manage to do it for most of the war. And it was only in the last few years of the war, particularly interestingly, when the, the wartime poets, people like Edward Thomas, wrote their, their heart-rending poetry describing how they themselves had to, uh, had to fight and kill people in this, in this utterly useless war. So when you see in this country, here we are 13,000 miles away from France in the Antipodes, right at the end of the world, this country, Australia, is littered with cenotaphs, enormous, rather uh, incredibly forbidding structures that were built originally to commemorate almost I almost said celebrate, but to commemorate the, the Australian so-called contribution to this blood fest on the other side of the world. It says so much about the fidelity of colonialism. It says so much about the pointlessness of war, war as almost an exercise, which many of the generals, of course, who are responsible for the carnage, regarded as such an exercise. Well, I must tell you, uh, John, that um, that film was, uh, everyone should see that film. Everybody should see that film um, because uh, it uh, really is uh, chilling. But you know what it is, John? You make these films, and I don't like to use the word entertaining, but, but they're gripping. You know, I, I watch them all the way to the end. Uh, you have such a marvelous touch about you when you make uh, these productions, all of them. Uh, we're gonna explore a few others uh, later on. Um, I, I did wanna uh, say that you also mentioned uh, how we got into the war, and that was with the help of uh, uh, Bernays, uh, uh, Edwin Bernays uh, in this country, and how he like, um, you know, made this a, a popular movement uh, to go to war, and Wilson brought him in, and uh, he sold it. Um, so, Bernays, speaking of Bernays, uh, he was like the flip side of Julian Assange, our friend Julian Assange. Julian Assange exposes uh, the, the horrors of war, like Goya, uh, whereas Bernays was glorifying it and, and covering stuff up. And perhaps if he had someone like uh, Julian Assange back then, 1915, uh, can you imagine what would happen to someone like Assange if he were to publish uh, what really happened in Gallipoli and at the Son? You know, it's a very good. That's <clears throat> a it's it's a very good description there, Randy. I I think we always, you know, those of us who are uh, are trying to draw attention to the horrors of these wars we have to recognize how far we've come. We do have, we have the tools now. We have the tools now to persuade uh, most of humanity that, that almost all wars are pointless and all they do is extinguish life. Uh, and their purpose is to promote 
power groups. We have the tools to do that. And, and WikiLeaks is a very good example of that because the sort of ingenious technology, the Dropbox that Julian invented, whereby people could whistleblowers, could leak the truth of, let's say, wars like collateral murder is the famous WikiLeaks uh, uh, disclosure of an Apache helicopter gunning people down in Baghdad. Uh, WikiLeaks showed that that technology is available. Uh, and it's very frustrating to see the, the powers that be, the rapacious forces, the, the killing forces, have a, <coughs> excuse me, have a monopoly on this, uh, on this te technology. And that's why Julian is in the trouble he is. You know, he, <laughs> he said, no, you don't have, you don't have the monopoly. You, you, it's not, it's, the people have a right to these extraordinary digital um, developments. We can do it too. We can, we can use them as, as vehicles of truth. And that's why he's in the trouble he's in. Uh, because he's up against such dark forces which have a monopoly on this technology. They really are a force to be reckoned with. Uh, John, you know, we did our very first Assange Countdown to Freedom uh, almost exactly three years ago. You were on it with Julian. And uh, so that's, we're like three years, it was April 11th, uh, 2017. You were on first and then he was on second. And, and I've interviewed you many times since then. And, you know, the situation has gotten worse. I thought by now, uh, this would be, uh, you know, resolved and he would be back to work and he'd be out of that situation. But it's actually intensified. Um, what am I and other people doing wrong or is it something that's out of our control? No, you're not doing anything wrong, Randy. You're doing everything right. Uh, and you should uh, uh, take some comfort in, in that. Um, uh, People who oppose these forces, uh, these powerful forces in the world, the forces of imperialism, um, uh, are themselves in a minority, except that they have the knowledge that the world is changing. The world is changing fast that much of the power, imperial power of the United States uh, is, is ebbing. Uh, it, it's certainly not, uh, it's, it's certainly there and it's certainly extremely potent and we must never underestimate it. But the world has changed from what the, uh, what the academics called a unipolar world or a dual polar world to a multipolar world. Now all that gobbledygook means is that the other nations of the world also have the technology. They also have the development. 
the reason that there is such a virulent campaign against China is that China's rise on the ashes of its poverty and humiliation uh, represents that change. And countries in Africa know that. People all over the world know that. So it's a, it's, I want to say that not out of any kind of expression of false optimism. Uh, that we, it's not that we have these forces as our supporters, as it were. All I'm saying is we're not alone, and you shouldn't feel that well, you're alone. Not me. I'm saying that, uh, you know, the movement, it, it seems it's gotten a lot bigger. There are more people who are demonstrating and uh, a lot in Australia. Um, and uh, here they, they've sprung up uh, these vigils and rallies and uh, until the coronavirus uh, hit. Um, and uh, so the movement seems to be getting bigger. But the intensity um, by the U.S. government, the their uh, vassal state, um, the CPS, uh, the Crown Prosecutor Services, uh, being run by the Justice Department, uh, you know, this judge that's involved. Um, I don't know who's really pulling the strings here, ultimately. Uh, is it military contractors? Is it uh, NSA, the CIA? Who do you think ultimately is pulling the strings that's making this thing continue? Uh, when you say making this thing, you mean you're referring to, to, to the, this 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 persecution of Julian Assange? It's, it 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 continues, uh, and in spite of you know even um, uh, Boris Johnson came out and said something favorable. The Queen uh, said that this is a political matter, uh, <laughs> and uh, ABC uh, Australia actually did something uh, good recently. So it's to me it looks like it's moving. Um, you know, well, I think in the right direction, but <laughs> the zealousness of this prosecution goes unabated. It's a, it's a difficult one to answer, but it's a very pertinent question, Randy. It, it's um, Western imperial power, if I could use that to group everything that you're talking about, is, is a multi-headed hedra, it's a multi-headed beast. Uh, it's, <clears throat> its headquarters is of course in the United States and has been since the 1950s when the US effectively took over from Britain as the major imperial power. Uh, now it's had various titles since then, national security state, whatever that means, it's only a euphemism, but it, it does at least give us a term that brings in all the great institutions of war in Washington, let's say, from the CIA, National Security, uh, um, the NSA, the, the Pentagon, uh, and all the rest of them. Those that that sap up, what is it, $740 billion worth of, of, of uh, arms budget uh, in a country that's having difficulty uh, finding enough money for face masks and ventilators. Um, it, it's, it's, 
it's it's a it's a massive uh, establishment, and it has. It has it 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 has several million people. I think Julian, in an interview, one of the first interview I did with Julian, he just he described this quite interestingly, and he he said that there were two million, I think, was the figure he used, people who actually had classified clearance within this national security monolith. In Washington, and of course, he said he took it from a rather positive point of view. And he said, "So imagine, among two million, the numbers of conscientious objectors." Right. And of course, among those two million uh, have been those who have leaked important documents, not some of the most famous or infamous documents, but quite a few documents to WikiLeaks. Uh, so it 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 has built up this massive it's a massive physical presence. It is uh, it is a cultural presence because in the United States it's still built into the U.S.'s uh, view of itself as an exceptional nation with its flags and uh, and its view and its a slightly absurd view of itself as different from the rest of humanity when of course the difference is only in terms of power um, but it, it so it is cultural it is it is military it is it and it's it's given extra power by the intelligence agencies and they really you mentioned the CIA but there are so many of them as you know um, the uh, the DIA Defense Intelligence Agency for one thing across the Atlantic uh, and uh, the, uh, the 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 intelligence agencies um, in uh, in in Britain are part of that uh, in <coughs> in a, a, a network called the Five Eyes set up after the Second World War. There's Britain, the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and all of them uh, are uh, part of this national security agency. The country I'm speaking to you from is probably the most integrated into this monolith in Washington, integrated in terms of its intelligence agencies, its military, politically, its media, so it is. It is so vast uh, that it exudes this power and is able to wield this power. Uh, and that's why, as I mentioned earlier, the the anti-China campaign is so important because this is the first real threat. The old threat in the, in the 21st century. The Soviet Union, of course, was the first threat to this. Uh, <clears throat> and I suppose um, a, a, rejuven a rejuvenated Russia is itself a threat to it. But mainly it's China, which has this, which has this uh, 
technological uh, power now uh, uh, has a trading power, manufacturing power, scientific power, uh, and is in so many respects past the United States. So yeah. it, it's a time of it's a time of great struggle. How we come into this, I'm, not, I'm to be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure, but I know that we mustn't shut up. That's the point, the rather long-winded point I'm making. No, it was actually a very good point. In fact, uh, we're going to uh, play a, uh, a scene from uh, The Coming War on China, your uh, 2016 documentary. The world is being primed to regard China as a new enemy. The great power game is called perpetual war. Our first president, George Washington, said, if you want peace, prepare for war. Where are we going to stop this process before it starts a war? The aim of this film is to break a silence, and nuclear war is no longer unthinkable. The equivalent of one Hiroshima bomb was exploded in these islands every day for 12 years. They're not trying to run the world. They want to keep America from dominating. We need an enemy for all this money, and China's the perfect enemy. United States scientists conducted human radiation experiments to study how human beings absorb radiation. There's really nothing more terrifying than this. The Chinese, 2,000 years ago, built the Great Wall to keep the barbarians out, not to invade them. As we look at China on the map, we can see that China is the basic cause of all of our troubles in Asia. China, they want to dominate a huge chunk of the planet. It is time to show the whole world that America is back. I pity a country that would come up against us. We get better and better and better. Okay, uh, that uh, is from The Coming War on China. Uh, John, that, that is a, a brilliant film. It really is. Um, and it's actually, uh, it played in China before I saw it, I believe. Uh, but it's it's now on uh, your website, johnpilger.com, uh, where you have now, what, 71 uh, uh, films? At, uh... No, not quite that. No, no, that would, that would put me into, uh, into the kind of uh, venerable state I don't think I wish to be in. But uh, uh, it's 61. 61. Right. I don't know why I said 71, but uh, it's 61. I think 71's on my mind because that's when... Um, that guy, uh, Eric Bogle, uh, wrote the, and the band played Waltzing Matilda. Um, but uh, get it at johnpilger.com. Um, so you talk about Australia being tied into this uh, more than any other of the five eyes with the United States. So I, I guess someone like um, Scott Morrison, there's nothing he can do about this. Uh, it doesn't matter who the prime minister is because it's all of this um, – all of these different entities, uh, national security entities that are really running the show there. Is that what your assessment is? Yes. Well, Scott Morrison is just, he's, he's just the latest. All, all the, they change prime ministers here pretty quickly. Um, and uh, so there's quite a lot of internecine fighting within their 
their own parties. Um, and he's just, he just the latest. But all of them, all of them are agreed, you know, as they're all agreed basically in the United States, all agreed in Britain and in quite a few Western European countries as well, that, um, that, that uh, uh, imperial power is, is best for the world. Uh, and uh, Morrison is, a, is, I would say, a true believer in, in all of this. When he was asked about Julian, Julian Assange <clears throat> is always the way to test this. It's like, it's like uh, uh, you know, it's either, I'd about to say a litmus test, it's more like a red rag, I suppose, uh, at some people. But he was asked recently about Julian Assange, who is an Australian. Somewhat, someone, an Australian that we all here should be very proud of, um, and uh, for his achievements and for the courage of his struggle and everything that he's done. Uh, but so often here, unfortunately, his is the name that shall remain unmentionable. And Scott Morrison was asked. Why doesn't the Australian government help its national Julian Assange? It helps other nationals who get into difficulty in foreign lands. And Morrison's reply was, he should face the music. You got so it. That, that's, that's the level that gives you, that explains a couple of things. It explains the level of political discourse that uh, uh, is in Australia, and also, most importantly, the, the integration of this allegedly independent country uh, into a world that the United States likes to think it still dominates. Yeah. Um, you know, we last spoke on um, January 10th uh, before the um, this complete uh, uh, crazy uh, trial, not crazy, but just a um, uh, phony trial. First half of it uh, on February 24th. I was there for three days. Um, so uh, give us your um, assessment, uh, what you um, were able to glean from uh, that part of the world on that trial. Well, the, trial the trial, the trial I've been in, I've been in uh, uh, courts where the same judge, Vanessa Barreza, has presided. Uh, the February four days, uh, of proceedings of Julian's extradition hearings. The application by the United States to extradite Julian uh, for crimes of journalism, for publishing that which the public has a right to know. I mean, that's basically it. We all, we know that. The, the, the indictment itself is a concocted nonsense, all based on a and 1917, we're talking about the First World War, based on a First World War US legislation, which was aimed at getting anti-war dissenters, those who opposed America, 
going into the First World War rather belatedly in 1917. A lot in America then did, and good on them. Uh, this Espionage Act was rushed through Congress in 1917 to try and uh, uh, do something about these dissenters and conscientious objectors. So in one sense, it's quite appropriate that uh, they should be using this to try and get Julian, even though Julian, of course, is not an American, but that doesn't matter in the United States. We're all Americans as far as the US is concerned. Um, uh, and, and so the, it, it is, and the words I use are literally, it is a farce. Yes. There's no law. There's no law in this. Um, Julian hasn't committed any crime. There, there are no charges that would hold up in any proper court of law. If it got to a courtroom, they should have been thrown out in the first five minutes. But the court that you've described under this judge, although she's really a magistrate, Vanessa Barretza, is no different from uh, one of the Soviet show trial courtrooms, uh, absolute farce. Um, uh, her decisions are clearly preordained. Uh, it's a government court. The government is calling the shots. I, right. Again, don't use these descriptions as what we used to call agitprop. They're not that. They're accurate. That's what it is. Uh, anybody who's seen her in action, as you have, and seen this so-called court in action, remember, the court is actually an extension of a maximum security prison way on the outskirts of London. Now, the whole point of, of, of courts when they were, uh, when, when they proliferated, particularly all over uh, England, modern courts in the early Victorian days, was that they should be accessible to the public. They should be in the centre of towns, along with the town hall and the library and all the other public buildings, as they're meant to be in the United States. But this court is part of a prison, and the prison is, is a long way out of London, very difficult to get to. So, it's physically the court is a farce. The way she conducts it is a farce. Uh, I've no doubt that, that the decision will go against Julian. Uh, and in one respect, that's probably, it's probably, I was about to say the best thing that can happen, the sooner we get it to appeal, get it into the high court in Britain, before real judges, and I'm thinking of crusty old conservative judges who have this very strange devotion to the law, who believe in the law. Uh, I've seen them in action. Um, now, how many are left, I don't know. But I, I think any judge with any sense of the law and the majesty of the law and the fairness that should be in the law and of justice will throw this out, throw her decision out quickly. That's my hope. That's my hope anyway. 
He's uh, a, a real embarrassment. I mean, I did watch it um, with uh, there, 24 of us were allowed uh, on the second floor. We could see it through this bulletproof uh, window. And uh, you look to the left, you'd see her to the right, and you'd see Julian uh, to the left uh, behind a bulletproof uh, wall um, uh, window, uh, away, away from his attorneys. The closest one was Delamores and, um, and uh, Balthazar Garzon. They were about eight or 10 feet away. So, he, I mean, they couldn't hear him. He couldn't hear them. And it, it, I've never seen somebody so handicapped uh, at a trial. And this looked like one of those trials you see in Turkey or in Egypt when they're in these cages. Because he was, it wasn't a cage, but it may as well have been. He's way in the back, isolated, and unable practically to participate in the proceedings. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, I know it's on the way. On the way to that that court, he that courtroom was joined by an underground tunnel that ran between the court and the prison. And Julian was brought through that tunnel. And on the way, they uh, stripped Hirchman twice. He was handcuffed, and they took from him documents that he needed to refer to during the proceedings. Um, you know, these, this, is, this is the stuff of dictatorships. This is, not, this is not real law. This is not even conservative law. This is dictatorship stuff. Uh, and uh, it's, it's truly shocking. Yeah, it really is. The, the, the three days that I saw it, um, it, it was so depressing. Um, to see him have to go back with uh, these uh, court officers back through that tunnel where he was. He was actually handcuffed 11 times within a couple of hours. Handcuffed, taken off, handcuffed, taken off. Uh, they don't even like make an attempt uh, at a pretense uh, 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 of an honest uh, trial here. There's no pretense of it. It's like you have these three three um, uh, members of the U.S. Justice Department sitting right behind uh, the prosecutors and basically giving them orders. And you and I had this conversation, John, who goes to law school? Who spends all that time in law school and does what these guys do? This is what makes me really sick. Yeah. Well, the, the young, um, ambitious people, uh, uh, the uh, the, the prosecuting uh, authorities of the Third Reich were, were full of young, ambitious people. Yeah, well, um, I got to see them every day, and they mingled in the same uh, cafe uh, during breaks and, you know, didn't care. Totally shameless about what they were doing. Um, I want to talk about... Um, about uh, your experience with Julian Assange. Uh, you, I don't think anyone has visited him uh, more than you have outside of Stella Morris, of course. Uh, just uh, a couple of uh, stories about Julian's character um, um, over the past 10 years that you've uh, been visiting him. Well, I mean, I, of course, I started visiting Julian in his 
in his more benign prison, uh, the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And uh, uh, I remember once such ironic words from Julian when he was, he was asked by somebody there, how, how do you put up with this? You're stuck in this, you're stuck in this, uh, uh, basically it was a four bedroom apartment which the embassy ran, you know. Uh, and his reply was, gee, it sure beats a supermax. Well, uh, it was typical of Julian's black humor because at the end of the road, was and is a supermax, uh, unless his this uh, uh, extradition fails. But um, I, um, Julian first went into the Ecuadorian embassy because his lawyers had exhausted the appeals protest to get the European arrest warrant that Sweden had put out for him to get it dropped. Now, the European arrest warrant has since been uh, uh, abolished effectively because it's such an unfair uh, device that was used to catch terrorists and murderers and instead it allowed governments to, uh, to and prosecutors like the now discredited Swedish prosecutor to reach out and uh, um, uh, try and uh, uh, to 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 grab to grab Julian on virtually on no pretext. So it was. I suppose what I'm saying is the courts probably couldn't do anything with it because there wasn't any. The law said that the European arrest warrant was final, and uh, so they couldn't disagree with it. But all along the way, I sat through many of those court, high court proceedings, and it was quite clear the judges hated it. Uh, but on the final day, when the, he was at the UK uh, Supreme Court, uh, in fact, he wasn't at the UK Supreme Court. His lawyers turned up because he had been forewarned that the moment he stepped out of that court, he would be served with uh, an extradition application from the United States. That's how they work. Gareth Pierce, his, his, uh, his lawyer, had warned him that this would happen. And so there was, there was a choice. Uh, a very clear one. Uh, he either walked into the arms of the US then, or he sought political asylum. And uh, he sought and was granted political asylum finally by the then uh, president of Ecuador. And of course, those years he was in the embassy became extremely and increasingly difficult years, especially as the government changed. There was what amounted to a coup in, in Ecuador. Uh, the, uh, the government that had given him political asylum, asylum became his enemy. Uh, 
and they became the last couple of years became very dark years for him and it was almost inevitable that i think it was just over a year ago about the 12th of april last year when uh, uh, the government of ecuador by arrangement with the us and with the british government um, allowed um, uh, British police to storm into the into the uh, embassy and, and literally drag Julian out. In those last few years that you asked, Randy, Julian and I would, uh, we were then, and he certainly was, aware of the the ubiquitous surveillance that was everywhere. We used to write notes to each other. Uh, he would suggest that we, we, we squeezed into a corner of the main meeting room uh, because he pointed out the cameras so that the camera might just miss it, but that we mustn't talk other than in a whisper with each other and, ex and that we should exchange notes to each other and that we should cover what we were writing. Can you believe? No, it's, it's that, that, that surveillance was really heavy, this uh, UC Global. Uh, John, myself, I, <laughs> there are some videos of me. I visited him when I visited you way back in 2017, but it was all like small talk. We didn't talk about anything. I, I don't know anything. I'm a Luddite, you know, I don't know anything about technology. Uh, but um, gee, I saw pictures of me, of, um, uh, stills from these videos and they got me sleeping in there me having a drink in there uh, but it was really widespread and uh, why isn't that uh, being used uh, right now to dismiss this case this activity because they got the lawyers they got journalists isn't that that enough to have this case thrown out yes yes it is but I think we've already described this case uh, we were oh, sorry. We've already described the proceedings that uh, are now being conducted by this magistrate Beresa, and they're not a true. She's not a true court of law. Uh, I my hope is again that when this does get on appeal to what might be called true courts of law, it'll be thrown out. I don't know. I hope so. I hope so too. John, um, before we take a little break, uh, I just wanted to ask, you've been doing this um, out there advocating with a lot of zeal uh, for the past seven years uh, on behalf of Julian Assange. Still, um, I saw you on a webinar the other day. Uh, you speak um, uh, at all of these rallies. What, what drives you? Why is this so important to you, John? Well, it's, it's just important, period. Uh, I mean, it, it should be important to everybody. I agree. And yes. People should ask themselves, if it's not important to them, then why is it? Because even from a selfish point of view, if Julian is allowed to go down, uh, then a whole pillar of our rather precarious structures of faux democracy, a whole pillar will fall down. Now what that does to the rest of the structure, I don't know. But those 
those who uh, who don't find the Assange case important should ask themselves because they live in the same societies, they live in the United States, they live in Britain, they live here in Australia. In the end, it will affect them. Perhaps it may seem, perhaps it may seem too remote. I also have to say, Randy, that <clears throat> propaganda has played a very important role in this. Um, the media is a propaganda system beginning to end. There's no point in even debating it. There are a few minor exceptions, honorable exceptions, perhaps. But, but by and large, it's a propaganda system. And uh, up till probably up to this year, I would think, the media has conducted on behalf of the the monolith that we've been describing, the national security state, it has conducted a virulent propaganda campaign against WikiLeaks, against the journalism it's done, and against Julian personally. Uh, you know, it's very, it's very difficult for people, uh, especially people who imagine as many still do, unfortunately, that the television news they turn on or the newspapers they pick up or whatever pops up on their phone is sort of the truth. Well, it isn't, of course. Right. You, you, you called it, you know, the other day in that webinar, um, he said that uh, you don't want to be part of this fourth estate. The fourth estate is a joke. There's got to be a fifth estate. Can you elaborate on that? Well, it, it, it's a very, the fifth estate was a term used by Edmund Burke uh, in the late 18th century when he described the, the press as really uh, playing a checking role. The US Constitution describes it's pretty much the same thing, just a version of what the US Constitution says. But the, the press is there to check the other estates of power. It's there to check the government, it's there to check the judiciary uh, and all the great institutions of power. That, that should be its role. That's the classic liberal view of it, the fourth estate. Well, the fourth estate has long been integrated into the, the power structure. It doesn't exist anymore, certainly not in the, the role that Burke envisaged and certainly the US Constitution describes. So I think we should be thinking of a fifth estate that is a movement of journalists that no longer accept the premises of power uh, and their part in that power, that understand their part in that power, that uh, are enlightened about their part in that power and that how rotten that power is and that it has nothing to do with free journalism. It is simply the voice of authority the voice of, of great power. Um, now, we're a long way from that kind of enlightenment. But 
Julian's case, I think maybe, especially this year, starting to enlighten quite a few journalists uh, as the prospect of what might happen to Julian, what might happen, is the same, what might happen to them. Uh, that's a very, that's a very interesting um, dichotomy now as the two, his former opponents now realize that, well, maybe if they come for Julian, they'll come for me. How many are aware of that? I don't know. Very few, I would think. But it's beginning. It's, it's beginning. I, I've seen a few on, uh, on MSNBC uh, and a few on CNN, but uh, not enough yet. We're going to take a, um, a quick break, uh, and we'll be right back to talk about another great journalist. Uh, this is um, Country Joe McDonald, and it's um, his Vietnam uh, song. Country Joe McDonald, my old buddy. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why We're all gonna die Now come on, Wall Street, don't be slow I man this war a go-go There's plenty good money to be made Supplying the army rules of the trade Just okay that if they drop the bomb We're dropping on the Viet Cong And it's one, two, three What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn The next stop is Vietnam and it's five, six, seven, open up the pearly gates. Well, ain't no time to wonder why we're all gonna die. Now come on, generals, let's move fast. Your big chance is here at last. Now you can go out and get those reds, cause the only good commie is one that's dead. And you know that peace can only be one when you're blowing them all the kingdom come. Sing it! One, two, three, what are we fighting for? Okay, that was Country uh, Joe McDonald. You like that tune, John? Yeah, very much. I worked. I worked with him one time um, uh, for like an entire, I don't know, three or four months uh, on the road uh, on this anti-war show called uh, Reality versus Rambo uh, during the uh, Central America uh, conflicts. Uh, quite a character. I he 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 did a version of. And the band played uh, Waltzing Matilda. And I, I was in tears every time he did it. Uh, John, I, I, um, we're, we're talking about Assange. Like you, he has, he's been a recipient of a lot of awards. One that you um, uh, were involved in uh, back in 2010, which was the Martha, Martha Gellhorn Award. And uh, I... I, I started watching these new shows that are on your website. I think they're new. It's, it's from a program that you did uh, called The Outsiders uh, back in 1983, I think, uh, on Channel 4. And I, th this interview with Martha Gellhorn is just really, really riveting. Uh, tell us about the award that you gave Assange and about the Gellhorn Award and, and um, 
your uh, experiences with uh, Martha Gellhorn? Well, the Martha Gellhorn Award is named after and is a tribute to um, one of the great war correspondents, humanitarians as well, of the 20th century, Martha Gellhorn. Martha Gellhorn, um, uh, an American who uh, reported uh, many wars, famously the Spanish Civil War and the Normandy landings of the Second World War, um, Vietnam. She and I met when we were both reporting Vietnam, though we didn't meet in Vietnam. Um, and uh, she wrote me a card. She used to write a lot of very nice postcards for people in the day, in the days when postcards were the thing to send to each other, not emails. And, uh, um, and uh, we became, we became uh, close friends over the last, certainly over the last 20 years of, of her life. Um, and the interview I did with Martha um, was really uh, when we uh, had just got to know each other, I suppose. She um, 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 uh, she she had she was so ahead of her time. Um, she didn't regard herself as part of any power structure. Uh, she probably was quite for a permanent expatriate, American expatriate if not an exile. She lived in London uh, after the Second World War. Uh, she was probably quite a patriotic American, but she never regarded herself as part of power. Uh, she regarded herself as uh, reporting from the ground up. That was the title of one of her books, From the Ground Up, uh, not uh, uh, from the top down. It was one of the things I, I learned from Martha, um, although I'd probably done it right from the beginning myself, but she articulated it very eloquently. Um, and a few of us who were her friends and cronies, um, uh, only about half a dozen of us, uh, got together when she died in 1999 to, uh, to, to uh, uh, launch the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism. It's quite a prestigious award. Uh, we, around about, um, we, we give it every now and then now. We used to give it every year. Um, but um, it, it, it's um, about 10 years ago, we decided to stop giving it to uh, people on main, in the mainstream media. Uh, even though those who'd won it, and there are several very distinguished Guardian people who'd won it, uh, they deserved it. But we wanted to look beyond that. So we looked out to that great hinterland of, 
of uh, uh, not social media, but the internet. And, uh, and of course, uh, one of our winners was Julian Assange. Um, and Julian uh, spoke at a lunch. He was then on, he then, he, he was in London and he had to get, he was staying at um, Paul Smith's rather palatial country house out of London, but he had to report, they were making him report to the police every day then, back in 2010. So we changed it from a dinner to a lunch and Julian made one of the best speeches I think I've ever heard about technology and how so much of it is used to obfuscate, to complicate, to confuse us, to, to muddy the waters and to control us. Uh, coming from somebody who with a, a background in technology and in, particularly in physics, it was a very lucid and clear speech about, about that was saying beware. And of course, it's something, it's probably the most immediate threat we all face is that, that the digital world into which we're now plunged full time with all, all these lockdowns <clears throat> uh, is going to be, to use that terrible expression, the new normal. And Julian, Julian ran up a big red flag on this. That was his, that was his contribution. It wasn't filmed, this speech. It was heard by perhaps 50 people who were there, but it was, um, it was, it was, it was quite brilliant. Um, so he was, he was very much in the tradition of Martha. Martha was, um, um, Ma Martha's, we, the, the citation for those who won the award, like Julian, was, we quoted Martha, was, they had to be against what she called official drivel. Uh, and uh, if you can imagine this rather dowager, um, she, was, she, she was pretty high born, Martha, and, and she made the most of that. Um, uh, and uh, she was, um, uh, she would, she would regard it, she would talk about the, uh, those who, who kept spouting this official dribble and who the hell do they think they are. I mean, she was, she famously went, she went in her 80s to report the US George H.W. Bush's invasion of Panama. And it was she who revealed that the invasion, which the media echo chamber had said uh, was all very surgically clean, no civilians killed. Uh, all they'd done was go and get this bad man, Noriega, who of course was an ex-CIA buddy of George H.W. Bush. Uh, but in fact, they killed about 6,000 people in Panama City. Martha got this story. She went to Washington. She stood up at a press conference when you could do these things. You can't do this now. You can't just walk in. Uh, and she pointed a finger at, at a general and said, do you know what you've done down there? 
and she pulled out a notebook and she told him. Um, that's the kind of journalist she was. That was the sort of journalist we honoured. Um, there aren't many of them of about, but we, we try and keep her memory well and truly alive so that um, we can uh, hopefully flush out the Julian Assanges when, when we find them. Well, here, here is the, um, a clip at the beginning uh, of that interview. Uh, I think it was right after she had uh, returned from El Salvador uh, covering the conflict there. Uh, this is the beginning, uh, the opening sequence, uh, your uh, narration um, or description of, of, of the interview and who she was. Martha Gellhorn has just returned from the war in El Salvador. I have seen her draft dispatch. It is insight and passion and it reflects a rare sense of history, which is not surprising for a journalist who has covered seven wars over half a century. The first woman to be accredited a correspondent in modern warfare, she once wrote that journalism was simply the act of keeping the record straight. As one who has never been a cipher for authority, who has written always from the point of view of the victims of war, Martha Gellhorn has kept the record straight more than most. And for that reason alone, she is a distinguished outsider. She reported the Spanish Civil War with the defeated Republican side, whose cause she embraced, describing that war as between rich and poor. There she met Ernest Hemingway, whom she married. But whilst Hemingway's romantic fiction became a symbol of Spain's lost cause, it was Martha Gellhorn's frontline reporting from Spain to the forgotten war in China to Finland, to the world war in Europe, to Vietnam, that told of the sacrificial nature of war, of the slaughter of innocents. She entered Dakar death camp on the day Germany surrendered. It was, she wrote, a suitable place to be. And she's never forgiven the Germans. Miss Gellhorn's work, wrote H.G. Wells in 1936, is saturated with pity but never once do I find her lapsing into sentimentality. Martha Gellhorn was then in her early 20s, writing not about war, but about the struggle to survive in her own United States. Okay, and um, you, uh, you really did extol her. And then I, and then I want to play this um, uh, sequence as well. Uh, this is uh, her talking about uh, uh, her uh, experience in uh, the Spanish Civil War. Spanish Civil War as a war between the rich and poor, and also a war in which, as you said, everybody grew up politically. Could you explain that? If the poor, either as in Spain, defend themselves, or as in Vietnam and Salvador, uh, finally make efforts on their own behalf, uh, then they're automatically considered communist. And that's most fascinating because this is giving to communism the right to be the sole custodian of social justice, which it really is not. But our side always puts it in this position. We did it in Vietnam, we're doing it in Salvador, we did it in Spain. In Spain, the side of the Republic was Reds. Well, in fact, the Republic, which had been legally elected, was, if you will, the side of the poor, the majority of the people, and its desire was social reform and social justice. So then it's called red, as if only reds care about social justice. 
exactly the same thing in Vietnam. The Viet Cong, etc., etc., was red. But the Viet Cong was opposed to uh, absentee landlords, a totally uh, unfair system of running a country, same in El Salvador. So the poor are always called reds, and reds then become people who are in favor of social justice. Well, I think this is, you know, it's giving it, it it's giving it to the Kremlin on a plate. This is, this goes back to the stupidity of governments. So, um, John, uh, she's there in Spain. She's very young, and uh, many people think, we, we talk about Hemingway and George Orwell, but uh, many people believe that she was the most effective journalist uh, in Spain at that time. What are your thoughts about that? I don't know whether she was the most effective. I, I think it's important. There was, you know, Hemingway wrote some pretty good stuff, and Orwell, of course, uh, in his rebellion uh, in Barcelona, wrote some extraordinary work. Yes, I agree. She was, she was, she wrote what Martha did was, and I this touched me because it's what I've always tried to do was to connect what happens to ordinary people with the why of what happens to them, to connect them with those who may have caused their suffering at great remove and distance and power and culture. Uh, she did that very well. She called to account. She called to account. Um, and ordinary people in wartime is beautifully expressed in her book, The Face of War. And she was really the first, I think it's fair to say, yeah, the first in Vietnam to come out and say that the war in Vietnam was a war against civilians. And I remember my editor at the Daily Mirror in London uh, called me in and he had her, her articles on his desk. The Guardian, believe it or not, then published, she was a freelance, The Guardian had published them. The, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and Martha's family came from St. Louis, refused to publish them. The Guardian published them. And he said to me, read this. This, this is something, I think she's on to some, probably mid-60s, early mid-60s, um, in Vietnam. She couldn't get back in because of her because of her articles. The Americans, the military, saw that she was banned. She was seen as that, as, a, as such a threat. So her memory is, is very valuable. Uh, the, um, I, I think I read it somewhere that uh, because of her, um, either she wrote you a letter, that that uh, drove you back down to Vietnam and you did this documentary. I'm gonna play um, an excerpt of it. This is from uh, Vietnam, uh, The Quiet Mutiny. Vietnam for three years. The war, after all, is a war, so why go back? What is there left to say? Surely we've seen it all on telly. But our boredom has not made the war go away, so I've come back for the final act. No blood, no atrocities. Just the rejection of the war by those sent here to fight it. Just the quiet mutiny. 
of the greatest army in history. This is Snuffy, some eight miles from the Cambodian border in a wilderness of jungle and mud controlled by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. Snuffy is a beleaguered fort defended by the 1st Air Cavalry Division. The scene there looks so familiar, like a faded snapshot of another war we wish to forget half a century ago, with its trenches and mud and barbed wire and boredom and young men and their puppies. Snuffy is important because it's the end of the line for the grunts. They are the 18-year-old drafted kids, the national servicemen on whom the entire army depends. They are the ones for whom the buck has finally passed from the president and the pentagon and the career men who catch coals in their air-conditioned command posts. Out of 400,000 American soldiers in Vietnam, only 80,000 fight, and almost all of them are grunts. in 1970 are a very different kind of American foot soldier. They are mostly from a world unknown to their commanders. They are the graduates of an American rebellion that stemmed from the war they have been sent here to fight. And quietly but massively they have brought that rebellion with them here to Vietnam. For the grunts are unraveling the very fabric of the military. They are growing their hair, wearing love beads, smoking pot, flourishing the V-sign of peace. And some are refusing to fight. The young men you see in this film are not a selected griping minority. I've spoken to hundreds of young soldiers, and the rebellion they feel so deeply is everywhere. So, John, the Quiet Mutiny, you're, you're one of the few who, uh, in, I think that was, what, 71, 1971. What was it like at that uh, point in time, uh, John, to be down in Vietnam and interviewing these people who didn't want to fight? I've been reporting. Vietnam since 67 and uh, the quiet mutiny actually the quiet mutiny the connection with Martha uh, Martha saw the quiet mutiny and she got in she got in touch with me after that quiet mutiny broke the story of very widespread rebellion among American drafted troops known as the grunts and uh, they who wanted nothing to do with the war. They were of the so-called anti-war generation. Um, there were, uh, and uh, the film documented how that unpopular officers, uh, known lifers, were often shot in the back that uh, troops, it was very common for troops to, uh, to rebel, to mutiny. Uh, an entire division, uh, the Americal Division, 9th Division, they couldn't send it anywhere because it was so unreliable. The troops would simply sit down or throw away their weapons. So the war was, the whole American presence was disintegrating from within. And that's the story that the Quiet Mutiny told. Uh, I have to say it was my first ever documentary. It got me into a lot of trouble. The British uh, US ambassador in Britain then was Walter Annenberg, who was the newspaper publisher, who was a close friend of President Nixon. Um, he got in touch with the 
regulator of the television in London, uh, executives of the company I've made the film for were called in, told to get rid of this dangerous communist, and uh, and of course they didn't. Yeah, so it's it, 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 um, but it, it showed me the power of television because it did. It did have a huge power. I took it to the United States and showed it to uh, Mike Wallace. We had a special viewing at uh, in the 60 Minutes Theatre at CBS with Mike Wallace and a couple of his colleagues. And he turned to me at the end, he said, that's a great film, John. <laughs> it's a pity we can't show it. And he wanted to show it. Actually, CBS wanted to show, but they dared not show. Wow. It, it really is a great doc. That's your first one, 1971. Um, so, uh, John, can you describe for us what it was actually like uh, in Vietnam? Were you scared when you were there? Uh, I, yeah, I must have been because it was uh, – I certainly – there were a couple of incidents where I was scared, um, uh, under fire and all that, makes you very frightened. But it's not just that. It's the, the sense that something might happen to you personally. But I have to say, Randy, I didn't, perhaps it's youth, but I didn't really think about myself all that much. Um, I thought about, <laughs> I, was, I was such a, a zealous newspaper reporter or documentary maker that all I really cared about was getting the story and getting the film out. Uh, I was so I I was so astounded at what I was witnessing in Vietnam that I wanted to tell its story. That seemed to be the most important thing I could do. So rather than being scared which I must have been, uh, I think I was more apprehensive that, that some terrible bureaucrat at an airport would open a can of film and expose it all or, you know, that, yeah. that's, that's what really worried me at the time. They were, yeah. they were practical problems, but it was, it, 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 it was a, a time of, um, it was a time when journalists and filmmakers had freedoms that they don't have now, that they didn't use. I mean, that has always, looking back, that has always struck me. I mean, when you take the My Lai Massacre, 1969, that wasn't really, that was exposed the following year by Seymour Hirsch in the United States, not in Vietnam. Now, I wasn't in Vietnam when that happened, but some 80 journalists were in Saigon at the time that happened. And not one of them got the story. Uh, the reason they didn't get the story is that very few of them went out beyond Saigon. Very few of them traveled around the country countryside in Vietnam. So 
I suppose what I'm trying to say is that we had freedoms then that journalists, I believe, don't have now. They think they may have them, but they don't have now. So, but you've been to Vietnam. Uh, you were in, uh, we played a clip of uh, your year zero. What drove you back to Cambodia, I think four or five times uh, to uh, continue reporting on the situation in Cambodia? Uh, you're, <laughs> you're telescoping a great deal of life here, Randy. Uh, the answer is, is I don't know to a lot of these questions, but I'll try my best to, to answer it. I spend a lot of time in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia. I like being in Southeast Asia. I didn't like what was being done to Southeast Asia. Uh, I'd uh, I'd followed the Vietnam War from the mid-60s right up to the last day uh, uh, in, on April the 29th, 1975. Uh, and it was in 1975 that the Khmer Rouge, led by Pol Pot, uh, took over in Cambodia following a bombing campaign by the United States. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is that as a journalist and as someone with a, a, a particular closeness to Southeast Asia and the suffering being imposed on it, uh, I wanted to know why the Vietnam War was going on in another country, in Cambodia. And of course, the, the nightmare of the Pol Pot years unfolded, and which I filmed uh, um, in its immediate aftermath in 1979. Uh, I've always gone, in answer to your question, I've always gone back to countries. Uh, I don't like the idea of simply dropping in. I've done it. But the idea of the sort of parachute journalist, the parachute westerner, I've gone back to countries. I made five films in Cambodia. I made probably half a dozen in Vietnam. Uh, and uh it's 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 in a way i learned that it's when it's when the media leave when the press pack as they used to be called leave that's when you can find out what the real story is and i tried to film that in uh, in asia I, I tell you john it, it, all of those are really well done and um you know, they, they are important. All of your films are important. And you focus on war a lot. Um, and we're about to go to war, uh, possibly with China. But uh, I want to play an excerpt from uh, a 2003 uh, documentary uh, film uh, called The War on Democracy. Let's go to that. Guatemala is going to enter a new era in which there will be prosperity for the people together with liberty for the people. 
question is, why are we supporting El Salvador? No, the, the question was, is, why are we killing priests in El Salvador? The answer is, we're not. Now, you be quiet. President Cristiani is trying to do a job for democracy, and the left-wing guerrillas must not take over El Salvador. our own style of government on the unwilling. Our goal instead is to help others find their own voice, attain their own freedom, and make their own way. This film is about the struggle of people to free themselves from a modern form of slavery. Richard Nixon, President of the United States, once said of Latin America, people don't give a shit about the place. He was wrong. The grand design of the United States as a modern empire was drawn on the hopes of an entire continent known contemptuously as the backyard. The extraordinary witnesses in this film describe a world not as American presidents like to see it, as useful or expendable, they describe the power of courage and humanity among people with next to nothing. They reclaim noble words like democracy, freedom, liberation, justice, and in doing so, they are defending the most basic human rights of all of us in a war being waged against all of us. All right, that was from the War on Democracy, and it really focuses on uh, the current situation even this is 17 years ago, but um, or 14 years ago, um, but it focuses on um, on Venezuela. Are, are you are you um, nervous about what the U.S. may do in the coming months in Venezuela, in spite of the coronavirus? I'm always nervous about what the U.S. might do. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I mean I think it's quite extraordinary. I've got got through my life without having been blown to bits by the United States. I think for any human being to say that is almost a near miracle. Uh, but, um, uh, and, and countries that are targeted by the US, such as Venezuela, that threat becomes very, very real. Um, but um, the US doesn't like fighting its own wars. When it's, when it's fought its own wars in the post-World War II era, it's usually lost. It's not very good at it. It's got a lot of uh, hardware, it's got a lot of guns, and it's got a lot of generals with ribbons all over them. But in the end, it really is very wary about going into countries where it might find Vietnam revisited. Uh, so I don't think the United States would invade Venezuela, but since the Reagan years, of course, the U.S. has set up a system where it uh, creates conditions for coups through what are known as color revolutions. Uh, it's already tried to do that in Venezuela and failed. Uh, I suppose that makes it rather dangerous because the U.S. has been seen to fail 
in its ambitions in in uh, in Venezuela. Um, uh, so as long as Venezuela can hang together, the, the military is loyal, the people are loyal, uh, the government does what it can do, uh, I think it'll survive. That's just a the uh, with the heavy uh, drop in oil prices, I don't see um, uh, where uh, they're going to get any uh, foreign investment in that country or, or sell their stuff on the market unless it's really cheap to bring out of the ground. Um, Venezuela. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very scary uh, situation that the U.S., the posture of, of the U.S. is frightening, as it is in Iran. Uh, a lot of war stuff, John. You hate war, and Julian Assange, of course, uh, like you, is uh, his work it really exposes the horrors of war. I, I just want you to, uh, at this point, uh, we've had you on for a long time, and I, I appreciate it. Just some closing thoughts on um, on Julian and uh, what uh, is in store for him. Well, Julian is... Uh, this case is the most, Julian is the most important political prisoner of my lifetime. He's one of the most important journalists and one of the most important publishers. Uh, because he's shown us that wondrous technology can be harnessed, uh, not by the not only by the forces of darkness, by governments, by authority, but by the people. And I think WikiLeaks is very much a people's organization because what it's set out to do is to tell us the truth of what governments say in private and lie to us in public about. What governments' real intentions are uh, in the starting of wars, in, uh, in, in economic corruption, in a whole host of, of issues that touch upon all our lives. So what happens to Julian is very important. But <clears throat> the injustice being done to this man, he's one man. He's one rather resilient but still frail man and I think in in that respect he embodies much of humanity which is up against power in some form either the power of denial the power of imposition of wars and and arms and so on so Julian actually is a touchstone for so much of what is going on in the war. That's why it's important from Julian's sake, sake above all that he gets justice, but it's important for all of us that he gets justice. Well, uh, I can't follow that. Uh, John Pilger, uh, thank you uh, for taking the time uh, tonight. And uh, thank you for all of the work, uh, your six decades uh, of doing great, great, great work, important work. 
significant work. And um, we're going to close here with a little bit of music by Phil Oaks, another anti-war song, and that is um, I'm Not Marching Anymore. This is from Phil Oaks. John Pilger, thank you very much, and we will uh, talk soon. Thank you, Randy. All power to you. John Pilger, thank you very much. Dedicated to all the nice folks in NATO. Oh, I marched to the Battle of New Orleans at the end of the early British wars. The young land started growing, the young blood started flowing, but I ain't a marching anymore. For I killed my share of engines in a thousand different fights. I was there at the little big horn. I heard many men lying, I saw many more die, but I ain't a marching anymore. It's always the old to lead us to the wars, it's always the young to fall. Now look at all we've won with the saber and the gun, tell me is it worth it all? from the Mexican land fought in the bloody civil war yes I even killed my brothers and so many others but I ain't a marching anymore for I marched to the battles of the German trench in a war that was bound to end all wars oh I must have killed a million men now they want me back again, but I ain't a marching anymore. It's always the old to lead us to the wars. It's always the young to fall. Now look at all we've won with the saber and the gun. Tell me, is it worth it all? For I flew the final mission in the Japanese sky. Set off the mighty mushroom roar When I saw the cities burning I knew that I was learning That I ain't a marching anymore Now the labor leaders screaming When they close a missile plant United Fruit screams at the Cuban shore Call it peace or call it treason Call it love or call it reason But I ain't a marching anymore No, I ain't a marching anymore Phil Oaks, I ain't marching anymore. Probably the greatest anti-war tune ever written. This is Randy Credico, Randy Credico Live on the Fly. And uh, this is Assange Countdown to Freedom, our um, fourth season. This is uh, number 16 this interview with John Pilger. Uh, what a treat. I mean, Pilger's simply the best, let's be honest. As Julian Assange said to me, John Pilger, pure gold. And he is. There are a lot of events happening uh, revolving around the defense of Julian Assange, and leading that charge is the Courage Foundation. We spoke earlier to Nathan Fuller. Nathan, uh, how are you and what's happening? Doing okay. Thanks for having me, Randy. Appreciate it. 
So in the defense of Julian Assange, the biggest concern right now is his, he continues to be at great risk of contracting coronavirus. The COVID-19 has already gotten into Belmarsh prison, and uh, though they're enacting solitary and isolating measures, uh, there's no real way for him to protect himself. There's also the ongoing issue of Assange's access to his legal team and ability to participate in his legal defense in this massive and very complex legal case that requires computer use and extended time and conversations with his lawyers that he's not been allowed to have. So at his most recent hearing, those requests for more time and for a postponement of his May 18th hearing were denied. So we're looking ahead to at least one more uh, legal hearing before May 18th, at which point the judge will have to reassess the coronavirus situation and determine whether to postpone the hearing or to go forward with it. Uh, either way, Courage has taken its public events online and are continuing to give legal updates and talk about the greater, bigger press freedom and First Amendment issues in Assange's case in a series of webinars. I've already done a series, including some with Chris Hedges, Dana Ellsberg, Margaret Kimberly, and several others. Uh, so look out this weekend for another webinar uh, and probably one in early May, uh, if not a couple more. So check out defend.wikileaks.org and find us on Twitter at Courage Found. And we're on Facebook and Instagram and Telegram as well. So uh, look out there for upcoming events and get in touch if you want to help us help Julian Assange. Okay. Uh, thank you, Nathan Fuller, and uh, keep up the good work. And Thanks, Randy. Foundation. Keep up the good work. You guys do an incredible job. Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. Nathan Fuller from the Courage Foundation. I want to thank um, all of you out there for listening and uh, supporting the show, which you can uh, go to uh, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Um, and make a small donation. Keep us going. Uh, this is our 16th episode, and we'd like to continue. Uh, we're doing this um, in a complex way. Uh, Kelly Lane is the engineer director out of uh, North Carolina. Uh, we have uh, Jimmy Sunderland, who's in Lake Arrowhead, California, who does the editing. Uh, and then we have um, sound files that are put together by uh, my good friends at Anonymous Scandinavia. So um, thank all of you. And of course, I especially want to thank John Pilger for um, doing this. He's so generous with his time and he's such a wonderful, talented uh, journalist. And as I said, the greatest journalist of my lifetime. So um, get, get his films. You can get them free. Just go to his website or you can get them at Bullfrog Films. Get them, show them. While you're inside during this lockdown, show them to your kids. All right. I think that's about it. Um, and uh, we'll see you soon. Uh, we're going to go out with little Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Bye-bye. Must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself. Because the past 
is just a goodbye. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by. And feed them on your dreams. The one they picked, the one you know by. Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh And know they love you And you That your elders grew by And so please help them with your needs They seek the truth before they can die Teach your parents well Their children's hell will slowly go by Them on your dreams, the one they picked, the one you know by. Don't you ever ask them why, if they told you you would cry, so just look at them and sigh.